Good morning. Friends, families, guests, we are really excited to have you guys with us this morning. And for followers of Christ, Christmas isn't the high point. New Year's isn't the high point. Spring and summer is not the high point on the Christian calendar. Today is the high point when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for thousands of years, my guess would be, is there's been a saying that's happened in churches along the way where the person up front says, he is risen, and you say, he is risen indeed. All right, so we're going to say it one more time. He is risen He is risen indeed. Amen. And so we've come to celebrate the resurrection of Christ this morning. So let me say a prayer as we begin here. Father God, we have come here to celebrate you and what you did over 2,000 years ago. That you came and lived, died a humiliating death, and then rose from the dead and gave us the promise of forgiveness and eternal life in you. And as we celebrate that this morning... May you open our hearts and lives to respond to what you'd have us to hear. And may you remove me, and simply may people hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. What we celebrate today is not a faith that we only possess. It is a faith that's been forged over generations and generations and generations, all the way back to that first moment when the first followers of Jesus realized that he had resurrected from the dead. How would it have been to be alive at that time that Jesus was alive? Imagine Jesus as a child, Jesus as a teenager, Jesus as your brother. I wonder if Mary and Joseph ever said to their other children, why can't you be more like Jesus? (laughs) Try to follow, follow that one. I wonder what Jesus was like as a young adult or working in his father's trade as a carpenter or some say a stonemason. Imagine being Jesus' cousin John the Baptist who also had a supernatural birth and calling on his life. These two were cousins. They grew up in somewhat together. And I imagine that they had conversations at times, maybe talking, John, Jesus, how do you think our lives are going to play out? What do you think is going to happen? Easily we can open the pages of the Bible and read it like this short story that happened over a couple days. But really the Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years. And Jesus was on this earth for 33 years. And in those 33 years, it wasn't all these huge moments one after another. There was probably mundane days, weeks, maybe even months in Jesus' life. Most of what we read in the Bible about Jesus is condensed into three years of his life. The other 30 we know little about. But in those final three years, incredible things happen. Jesus steps out of obscurity. And one of the first acts that we see happen is John the Baptist baptizes him. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus and a voice from heaven says to Jesus, You are my son, and I'm well pleased with you. Directly after that, Jesus is led out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted and tried and tested. And then after standing up under that, he begins his ministry. He calls 12 ragtag followers 
to come and follow him, his 12 disciples. These were not the cream of the crop, the best of the best. These in some way were the castaways, the misfits, and a very diverse group of men. And he called these men to be with him, to learn from him, to apprentice alongside him, and see what it truly means to be followers of Jesus. As Jesus begins to travel around and speak, he talks about the kingdom of God. And not only talks about the kingdom of God, he demonstrates the kingdom of God. He heals people, casts out demons, forgives sins. And the common, everyday people in all these different villages are amazed. They love Jesus. They can't get enough of Jesus. But the religious leaders are disturbed. Jesus is a disruptor. He's challenging people's views of God. Isn't God angry, distant, unconcerned about humanity? Isn't God consumed with keeping all the rules down to the little dots and crosses? But not Jesus. And when you put a disruptor into a religious system, things get interesting real quick. The common people can't get enough of Jesus. Can't get enough of his teachings, his healings, his miracles. The people in power, well, they can't get rid of him quick enough. Their system is being challenged. And so they begin to plot how they can ultimately get rid of Jesus by killing him. In the week leading up to his death, which is the week that we just celebrated coming up to Easter, we read about a whole series of brutal events. Betrayal, denials, trials, abandonment, beatings, mockings, and finally crucifixion. Jesus, 33 years old, his life coming to a painful, brutal end on a Roman torture device called a cross. The prophet Isaiah predicted Jesus' death 700 years earlier in Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5 in these words. We thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. If we look at Jesus' death and miss God's plan, that it was God's plan for him to die, to forgive, to restore, to heal this broken relationship with God and humanity. If we miss that, the cross seems senseless and shameful. But when we see in the death of Jesus that God is dealing with our sin, our rebellion, our shame, our suffering once and for all, that when we see the perfect sacrifice of Jesus as a way of restoring us back into relationship with God, then the cross of Jesus becomes this incredible symbol of love, of grace, of God's power demonstrated. And Jesus' death, the fulfillment, the payment, the power of sin, it's all taken care of. The cross erases all that. The death of Jesus brings people back together with God and each other. The cross tears down walls of ethnicity, class, gender, age, and ultimately destroys the power of sin and reunites us with a holy God. Brings us back how humanity was meant to be. Easily, we can take a jump from the cross to the resurrection and miss that there was this window of time in between his death and his resurrection. And in 
these days between, there's a few key moments. At the moment of Jesus' death, darkness covers the land. There's an earthquake. The temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. If you know about the Jewish temple, this was no small curtain. It was 60 feet high, 30 feet long, and about 10 inches thick. And it was not torn from the bottom to the top like somebody was ripping it. It was torn from the top to the bottom as God was saying, I am now making a way into my presence for all of humanity. There's no longer a separation between God and people because the death of Jesus Christ took care of it. The veil is torn. You can fully come into a relationship with God. We also read that graves were opened during the death of Jesus and that other people resurrected from the dead. People of faith. And they began to walk the streets in these different cities. And when Jesus was resurrected, these dead men walking and women were proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be crazy? Your uncle or aunt showing back up that had been dead for a few years and they're like, Jesus really did rise from the dead. We also read about a Roman soldier that at the moment of Jesus' death, knowing little about Jesus but simply there to recognize and protect these criminals who are being crucified, at the moment he died, this Roman soldier looked at Jesus and said, truly, This man was the son of God. He knew that it was not a normal criminal that was dying on the cross. He knew that the one who had come and the one who had died was somebody special. The way you die is often a statement of how you lived. And Jesus made an incredible statement in his death. Only a few short weeks ago, Billy Graham, a man who shared the hope found in Jesus with millions of people throughout his life, passed away at the age of 99 years old. His life exemplified what it meant to follow Jesus. And in his death, he held on to that hope of Jesus Christ. Take a look at the short video of Billy Graham and his hope of the eternal life. I have a tremendous amount of hope. Uh, because I'm a, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead. And I believe he's alive right now. My wife is already in heaven. I look forward to seeing her definitely in the near future because I'm 92 now. And I know that my time is limited on this earth. But I have tremendous hope in the fact I'll be in the future life, and I'll be there because of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross and by the resurrection. And this gives me a great deal of hope. You can hear the confidence in that short words of Billy Graham at 92 years old there. A man who shared the hope that he found in Christ, but he was holding on to that hope of eternal life. There's a quote that actually, after I researched it, is probably more attributed to D.L. Moody, but we'll leave it with Billy Graham this morning. And it goes like this. Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. Billy had an eternal hope. 
in Jesus Christ. And like Jesus, when he died, this hope was unwavering and he demonstrated that hope. Now back to the story of Jesus. Shortly after Jesus' death, a wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea, a secret disciple of Jesus during his life, who didn't approve of the execution of him, goes to Pilate, the governor, and asks for Jesus' body to bury him. Pilate says yes, and so Joseph, along with another man named Nicodemus, go and take Jesus' body off the cross and bring it down to be buried. They carry it to a tomb carved out of rock, wrap it, the body in linen, and bury him. Some of you might be familiar with this other man who helped take Jesus down and bury him. His name is Nicodemus. He's a religious leader that we hear about in John chapter 3. This religious leader came to Jesus at night because he didn't want his friends and other religious leaders to know that he was asking questions about Jesus. He wanted to keep it on the down low that he was questioning and asking. So he goes to Jesus and asks about the kingdom of God, but Jesus doesn't tell him about the kingdom. He tells Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He also tells Nicodemus that the Son of Man will be lifted up, just like Abraham or Moses lifted up the snake in the desert. The Son of Man will be lifted up, and those who come to him and believe in him will have eternal life. We also, many of us are familiar with these words said to Nicodemus by Jesus in John three sixteen, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We don't hear how Nicodemus responds to Jesus in this moment at night. And we only see him at one other portion in Scripture besides at Jesus' death, and that's in John seven fifty one. And in that moment, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are plotting against Jesus to unjustly convict him and execute him. And, and Nicodemus stands up in their midst and says, is it legal to convict a man before he is even given a hearing? Here Nicodemus is defending Jesus in public in front of all his religious peers saying, what you're doing is not justice. Now after Jesus' death, We read that Joseph of Arimathea provided the tomb and Nicodemus provides 75 pounds of spices to anoint Jesus' body. Those 75 pounds of spices would be around $200,000 in today's equivalents. Nicodemus is giving extravagantly to Jesus in his death. These two men were not per se close to Jesus, In his life. But when people were abandoning, denying, when people were in shock of what was happening, Joseph and Nicodemus are putting in plan, in motion, a plan they already had in advance. There's no way that Joseph came up with a tomb that night, and there's no possible way that Nicodemus came up with 75 pounds of spices that night. They had these things prepared. At least that's my hypothesis. I imagine at some point between encountering Christ and this moment, they had read these words in Isaiah 53, 9, which were written 700 years earlier, where it states, he had done no wrong and never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. And that is exactly how Jesus was buried. 
After wrapping Jesus' lifeless body in linen, they lay him in a tomb and rolled a stone in front of the door. Before we can celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we need to go to the cold, hard, closed tomb. There's no resurrection without a death. Death is as low as you can go. And for Jesus' followers and the nation of Israel and the people that loved him, this was the end. We need to pause at the tomb with that stone rolled in front of it. Jesus' lifeless body surrounded by the stone-cold walls. Death has come. What are the deaths that you have experienced? What are the tombs that you've stood in front of in your life and put your hands on and said, there's no resurrection here? Maybe it's a tomb of sickness, a tomb of death, betrayal, job loss, a tomb of addiction, of struggle, of pain, fractured relationships, What cold, hard tomb have you maybe even visited this morning and said, there's no way any life can come from this? There's no resurrection of this. I've been there, friends. I've journeyed to death's door. I've wept on the floor. I have been at the bottom. And there are certain things that no matter how hard we pray, no matter how much we want it, will never be the same. To claim God resurrects everything is pandering and dishonest. Because he doesn't. Sometimes a relationship is too broken. Sometimes the sickness leads to the death of a loved one. Sometimes your financial picture is lost and your house goes away. Never to return. Sometimes that lost child who strays doesn't come back. And how do we handle that? How do we handle the tears, the prayers, the struggles when there seems to be no answer and no resurrection? I don't have an easy answer for you this morning. But I know that we can't avoid the difficult questions. I know we can't avoid the pain, but we need to embrace it and struggle through it. And in the midst of that, hold on to Jesus, believing that even if the tomb is closed and hard and dead, that somehow, someway, there is still hope. And that is what happened on that day. Take a look at at this video from the book of Mark. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, 
and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterwards, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. <laughs> Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. disciples went out and preached everywhere. And the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Years ago, I visited Israel. And I got to stand in the garden tomb, which is one of the places that is historically said to have been where Jesus' Jesus's body laid for those three days and then was resurrected. And in the garden tomb, in that garden, there's a little sign that has these words from Romans 1-4, which state, Jesus declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection is a declaration a statement of who Jesus is. That he is the son of God, God in flesh, and that he has power over everything, even death. 
And you can see in that short video from the book of Mark that even his closest followers were struggling to comprehend that this really happened. You hear the word, some had doubts, some were struggling with this. Was this really real? Was this really true? But it was, even if they had doubts, that he had truly risen from the dead and the claims that he made to be the Son of God were true. So why does the resurrection matter? Well, if you study history and the Bible, the resurrection is actually documented as a true historical fact. If you'd like to know more about that, we have a book for you to take with you out on the Welcome Center called The Case for Easter. And it's a journalistic investigation into the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you can look back in history and see that it is is true, that this truly happened. And so since the resurrection is true, I want to leave you with a few things. First, the resurrection proves Jesus is who he says he is. And he and did what he said he would do. Jesus claimed to be God and told the people that he would die and rise again, and he did this. And three days days later, he rose from the dead. He followed through on his word. And he said now, in John 11, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Jesus did what he said he was gonna do. And therefore proves that Jesus is who he says he is. Second, death is not the end. That Jesus' resurrection shows that death is not the final blow. There is something on the other side, and Jesus states he is the resurrection. He is the life, and anyone who believes in him has eternal life. Third, when we receive Jesus, he brings resurrection power into our lives. All of us face struggle, death, pain, sickness, suffering. And when Jesus comes into our lives, he brings his resurrection power to us. Romans 8, 11 puts it like this. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same life-giving spirit. Have you experienced the resurrection power of Jesus in your life? Have you encountered Jesus for yourself? When I encountered Jesus, I was in need of a resurrection. And he did it. Some things came alive in me that only could be described as a supernatural act of God. This was not me making it happen. I was an uneducated functional drug addict with no direction at 20 years old. And Christ came into my life and brought his transformation to me. And he made me into who I am today. When people say to me, Mark, I'm so proud of what you've done with your life or how far you've come and how much you've changed, I have to turn back to them and say, it's not me. I didn't make this happen because I can only thank God that he grabbed a hold of my life and transformed me by his power. He is the one that rescued me. He is the one that transformed me. And it is his resurrection power at work in me that has turned me into who I am today. And if we don't recognize his power in our lives, we don't see any need for him. But all of us need the resurrection power of Jesus. And finally, hear these words, friends, family. If he resurrected somebody like me, he can do it for you. 
I don't know what it is in your life that you need resurrected. And maybe there's certain things that need to die. But God's resurrection power is available for you. He didn't say to you, suck it up. Make it happen on your own. Why don't you get your act together? He said, there's no possible way that you can do it on your own. So you just need to come to him. And he will give you the power to transform you from the inside out. He has demonstrated the extent that he would go to to rescue each and every one of us. He said, I will send my son to live a life, to die a humiliating criminal's death on a cross for each and every one of us. His death proves that his love had no limits. And his resurrection proved that he is who he says he is, that he will do what he says he will do. His death proves that death is not, his resurrection proves that death is not the end. That there's something more. And it shows us that there's power available to each and every one of us. For those of you who do not yet know Christ, his power is available for you to transform your life. I don't know what you need. I don't know what you've come in here with today, but I know that God's resurrection power is available to bring that inner transformation. And just because you've received Christ doesn't mean that you don't still need that resurrection power. Every single person on this planet needs it every single day. And we live in light of the resurrection. And friends, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God puts out an invitation to all of humanity and says, you can't do it on your own, so I will give you the power to transform your life. All you have to do is come and ask. Come and receive forgiveness, hope, healing, a restored relationship with God, and power beyond your wildest dreams to turn you into the person that God has created you to be. So today, I simply invite you to come. Whatever it is that's going inside, on inside of you, whatever you've come in here with, know that in Christ's resurrection, his power is enough for you. Let's pray. God, you didn't just say you loved us. You didn't just say that there was power available. You demonstrated your love. And you demonstrated your power. And that power is not something just mythical out there for somebody else. But you say in your word that that resurrection power is available for us. And Father, I don't know what people have come in here with. I don't know what burdens they carry. I don't know what tombs they've stood in front of. Maybe even this morning. But I know the God who is a God of resurrection. And I know that you can resurrect things that even seem impossible. And Father, may we not just hear words this morning, may we experience your resurrection power that is available to us. May you break into that death, to that hurt, to that pain, and may you breathe new life into us. May you forgive and heal and restore in only those supernatural ways that you can. And we ask this all in the powerful name of our resurrected Christ Jesus. Amen.